Welcome back to the London Futurists podcast. Our guest today is Diraj Mukherjee, best known as the co-founder of Shazam. I can still remember the sense of amazement I felt when, way back in the dot-com boom, I used Shazam to identify a piece of music from its first couple of bars. It seemed like magic and tangible evidence of how fast technology was moving. It was creating services which seemed like science fiction. Shazam was eventually bought by Apple in 2018 for a reported $400 million, and this gave Diraj the funds to pursue new interests. He's now a prolific investor and a keynote speaker on the subject of how companies, both large and small, can be more innovative. Diraj, welcome to the London Futures podcast. Thank you so much, Callum. I'm David. It's a pleasure to have you with us, Diraj. Diraj, let's start at the beginning. You went to school in India and you attended two prestigious universities in the USA, Dartmouth and Stanford. Tell us a bit about that upbringing and where do you call home? Sure. My family is from India and my father worked for Air India and we moved around a lot when I was growing up. So we lived in Athens and Paris and Calcutta and Geneva and Bombay and Singapore and Tokyo. So I had a very mixed upbringing. But as a result, I got used to adapting and adjusting to different environments. And when I moved to the US for my undergraduate at Dartmouth, which was a beautiful rural university, it was the early days of the computer. And I worked in the computer center, helping other young people get up to speed with the first generation of Macs, and then moved to Silicon Valley in 95 to do my MBA at Stanford University, which was where effectively the internet started up in 95 to 97. So I just happened to be in the right place at the right time in a couple of different occasions. You started your career with Bain Consulting mm -hmm. and then with Viant, which was a consulting firm which had a very fast rise and fall during the dot-com boom and bust. Yes. Was it there that the idea for Shazam was born? Not exactly. When I joined Viant in 97, straight after business school, the idea was to build digital businesses for big companies, so bringing together three disciplines. Strategy, what's the kind of business you want to build? Creative, which is the user experience design and the actual look and feel of the website. And then finally, technology, you know, what powers the site itself. And what I learned from that experience is bringing together those three different disciplines. And amazingly, it's a skill set which I still use today, even though it's been 25 years. But what I learned from that experience was about scaling a business. I joined when Viant was 100 employees. I left three years later, it was 1,000. So hyper growth, hiring at large scale, expanding internationally. And that's what brought me to London. I set up the first international office for Viant back in 1999. And what became of Viant? What happened to those 1,000 people? So I left Viant in March of 2000 to start Shazam. The internet boom was in full swing. Everyone wanted to be an entrepreneur. I had a couple of business partners and we wanted to throw ourselves into the deep end. A year later, the internet bubble had burst. There was blood on the streets of dead startups and Viant went from a thousand people to basically out of business. And it was just a real shock to see how things change so quickly from the hope, the optimism, the dreams, the get-rich-quick schemes to just fighting for survival. So you did that fantastic trick of jumping off the elevator just before it hit the ground. 
Yeah, that's my claim to fame. I think it was actually the week that the Nasdaq hit its peak that I left my safe job to become an entrepreneur. So timing is not my forte. I had no idea that the elevator was about to plunge. I was just embarking on a fantastic adventure. I had no clue that it was the worst possible timing. And did you have a clue about what application you were developing? My secret weapon was my business partners. We had no experience whatsoever in entrepreneurship, but we knew we wanted to start a company. And so we'd sit around and we'd go to the pub and drink beers and talk about ideas. And we'd hear music and we didn't know what it was. And my business partner, Chris, thought it'd be fantastic if we could just identify music using a mobile phone. That seemed like genius. So that's how we got into the music identification business. Some people may not know that this predated smartphones. There was no app to start off with. I remember dialing, is it 2580? Yes. To recognize the music. That's fantastic. Yeah. So it was even worse. There was no smartphones and there was no database of digital music at all. The technology had not been invented. We didn't have a business model. We didn't even actually know the domain of science we were trying to get into. But these were just mere sort of challenges that we thought we could figure out on the journey to entrepreneurial success. The optimism of youth. How did you solve the problem of having no file, no digital file of all the music that your system would need to recognize? We had to be creative because we had no choice. My other business partner, Philippe, he's got like superpowers. He did a deal with the biggest distributor of music in the UK, which had 100,000 CDs in their warehouse. And we basically built by hand these machines with CD players where we could pop the CDs in, extract a fingerprint, which is what we needed for our algorithm to work. And we had teams of people typing in the name of the song and the artist, and then basically compiled the first digital library of music, probably worldwide, but certainly in the UK. So crazy days. That's kind of almost like the definition of the mechanical Turk, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. You must have learned a lot of fascinating lessons during the development of Shazam, lessons both for entrepreneurs and for the rest of us as we watch technology transform our world. What would you pick out as being one or two of the most important things you've learned during that journey? Well, one thing I learned quite quickly was our dreams of overnight success were not going to work out. What I did learn over 18 years from start to finish is that it's character building. As an entrepreneur, you are throwing yourself into the deep end, hopefully for some, not with the terrible timing that we displayed. But you have to overcome the challenges that come in front of you, which you cannot anticipate. And that's why I count my blessings now, because I feel like it builds the mind of an entrepreneur to be able to push through all the setbacks, to be able to not take no for an answer, to look out for the team, even that they're working flat out. We never once hit our plans and projections, and we have to just dust ourselves off and keep going. And that's why when I look at today's generation of entrepreneurs, I know how they're feeling. I know what they're going through because it's always the same journey. There's no shortcuts. There's no way to fast track and get through all the hard work to building a successful company. So a company that fails to hit its plans and projections can nevertheless still go on to be a success. How do you know when you see people falling behind their schedule whether you should persist with investing in them? 
and supporting them. I'm not proud of this, but it took us 15 years to reach profitability. Our investors stuck with us through that time, which is, in retrospect, a huge luxury. And one should not underestimate the role of luck and getting a good break. We never made a fatal mistake. And that's why we live to tell the tale. Now, I think in that context, what I look for in an entrepreneur is the ability to use those setbacks as stepping stones and to have that vision and that drive, but to learn as they go as well. It's very difficult. There tend to be sort of opposite characteristics, which is the determination and the flexibility, the drive, but the adaptability. Those packages are uncommon. And I like to think I know it when I see it just from having learned the hard way. Very interesting. And do you think that entrepreneurs are born or made? I think that entrepreneurs are on a hero's journey. They decide that they're going to take on this challenge. And when they enter uncharted waters, it's a trial by fire. The ones who don't make it can be just because they didn't get the right break or the timing wasn't quite right. But no matter what, I believe you emerge with these characteristics, this resilience, the belief, whether one succeeds or fails. So unlike, let's say, a doctor or a lawyer where you train and you bring those professional skills, there's no such thing as a school of entrepreneurship. I don't think you can learn it in the classroom. You have to learn it by doing. And you cannot help developing as a person as you go through it. And the ones who make it through the end are the fortunate ones. So this is the London Futurist podcast. Yes. We like to understand how things are changing and could change. Yes. Do you think the skills and practice and domains of entrepreneurs are likely to change in the years ahead? Or is it time-honored skills that will still be critical? I really think that this generation of entrepreneurs is building on some of the same traits as those in the past, except there's a much stronger sense of community. Now there's much more of a community to lean on, to share ideas, to draw strength from. It's been my privilege to be involved with the next generation and to be a shoulder to cry on, to be able to help out when times get tough. But I don't think the fundamental characteristics or nature of entrepreneurship will change. It's more that now it's they're more fellow travelers than they were 20 or 30 years ago. Which is something that people have said has existed in Silicon Valley for a long time, and it's been lacking pretty much everywhere else, which takes us nicely into the subject of whether other countries could and should try to have Silicon Valley. Do you think that other countries, the UK, elsewhere, could be doing anything to make it easier for their entrepreneurs to achieve what people in Silicon Valley have achieved? Is it a sensible ambition? Is it possible? I believe so. I think that entrepreneurs will change the world. And I think any support that they get, whether it's from the government, whether it's from investors, whether it's from customers, makes a big difference. And I believe that in the UK, we've got a fantastic and thriving entrepreneurial scene helped by tax regulations like SEIS and EIS, which give benefits to early stage investors, which I'm a big supporter and proponent of. But I think more than anything else, it's about feeling like this is your life. You know, it's a job. But if you have support from your family, your friends, 
people who know the experience that you're going through, that's more important than anything else. And I certainly feel that that's the case in the UK and now more and more in Europe as well. Let's wave a magic wand. Yes. And you are now Prime Minister of Great Britain. Yeah. And your number one job is to make Britain as entrepreneurial as Silicon Valley or make parts of Britain as entrepreneurial as Silicon Valley. What would you do? I would ask the question, what's the future that we want to create? What's the society that we want to live in? What are the things that we want to hang our hats on in terms of where this country goes? And to have that vision to be part of creating a future that we envisage, that's, I think, what drives all entrepreneurs. It's not about creating wealth. It's not about fame and success. It's about building something which endures, creates a legacy and benefits other people as well. And that's the vision which I would set out if I were not an entrepreneur myself, but wanted to encourage all these individuals who might have different ideas, will have different strengths and weaknesses, different passions, but all in it together to create a better society for all. That's asking individuals to have their own vision, which transcends wealth and transcends fame. Yes. What about a vision for Britain? Is there a future definition for Britain? Is it Cool Britannia 2030? Is there something else you think is feasible and credible? I hope this is not controversial, but I'm not a massive believer in the concept of nation states. There's more important factors such as the future of the planet at stake. So I'm much more of a believer in collaboration in terms of coming together rather than defining through nation states. So you don't have Theresa May around for tea every afternoon? <laughs> because she would take the opposite view from that. It's fascinating, actually, because as I mentioned early on, I feel like I'm a global citizen having grown up in lots of different cultures. And initially, one sees the differences. So the language barrier, for instance, when I lived in Japan or the cultural differences if one goes to India. But actually, we've got so much more in common. I think what we have in common is a desire and an aspiration to improve one's livelihood, to build a better future for our children. So I think if we look for those commonalities, we're much better served than trying to be limited by our differences. Do you envision then a more collaborative world, a world in which people can work together for a common cause of a better planet? Or are you seeing polarization and divisiveness? I think we have to. The cause which I'm most passionate about at the moment is climate action, which I think transcends national boundaries. I think it is a defining challenge for people all over the world. And if we don't collaborate, there's no way we're going to solve this problem. And that's why I guess that we must tackle this issue across not just nationalities, but different skill sets and different generations. It's a very powerful argument for the belief in some form of globalization, the idea that we are one species and we all need to pull together. The challenges and the opportunities that face us are increasingly only manageable on a global scale. The rise of technology and AI, particularly climate change, these are inherently global issues. So climate change is something that you're actively investing in? Yes, that's right. I started out on this journey maybe 10 or 12 years ago. One of the important investors at Shazam was Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield and Byers, and Al Gore was a partner at the time, and he kindly did a talk for our team at Shazam, and he talked about climate change. And I was absolutely blown away by his vision and his stark warnings about where things were going. 
fast forward 10 years after we sold Shazam, and I wanted to do something to encourage the next generation of entrepreneurs who are trying to have an impact. And I felt that climate was the defining issue for so many of us. And that's why I focus in particular, but it's a vast domain as well. There's so much to learn and it's changing constantly. So I'm no expert, but yes, I am investing quite actively in climate. And do you feel that the investments you're making are going to have an impact, an actual tangible, sizable impact on the risks of climate change? To be honest with you, David, it's a learning process. So I organized a competition at the London School of Economics for young people to help me with understanding where the money can make a difference. And I had teams which were competing for a small prize. And the competition actually extended all the way from Singapore to Toronto. And one of the teams was looking at geothermal energy. And they identified a company called Dandelion based in North America, which uses the heat of the earth for both heating and cooling homes. And they recommended to me that I should invest. And I did. And it's been a terrific experience investing alongside Google Ventures and Bill Gates's Breakthrough Energy Ventures all thanks to two 19-year-olds who were just trying to make me cleverer so I could do my small part to invest in the next generation of climate companies. You're a remarkably modest man, Diraj, but let me see if I can tempt you to make a high-level assessment of where we are in climate change. Sure. On the one hand, you have some people who think that the situation is so bad that It's worth slashing very expensive, priceless things like art and delaying people on their normal day-to-day activities of getting from A to B and even going to hospitals on. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum, you've got people who say, well, actually, the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who deny that there's a problem at all, but that's pretty far out. There's a lot of people more in the mainstream, like Mark Carney, for instance, the ex-governor of the Bank of England, who's now very, very involved in climate change policy who says that actually we are making serious progress and that the core expectation was that we might heat the earth by three and a half degrees by about the middle of the century. And now the core expectation is it really more likely to be two degrees. Where are you on that? Is the situation a catastrophe, as The Guardian would have us think? Or is it a major, major problem which we are actually making progress on? I am a relentless optimist. I always believe that one needs to keep one's chin up. And I think we're making tremendous progress on climate action. The change, for instance, in the efficiency of photovoltaic cells is dramatic. There's exponential increases in the efficiency of renewable energy. So I think we are absolutely on the right track in terms of deploying these technologies. We just need to keep going for decades ahead. So this is not the time to sit back, rest on our laurels, and pat ourselves on the back. I think we need far more change and impact and innovation. But I think when we look back in two or three decades from now, we will see massive, massive change from the companies who are just starting out right now. My own view is that, as you've said, there's too much to learn here. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to learn. Yes. And we can't be sure. There are projections that the IPCC makes, but there's a variety of projections. And in each case, there are error bars. Mm Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's doom and gloom, right? but nor do I think we can be confident that things are all right. There are changes in the weather, which could be signals of faster changes to come. 
There are possible changes in ocean currents that people are projecting, which could plunge Britain into a much colder state, despite the world as a whole heating up. Yes. And we just don't know enough. So I'll go back to your entrepreneurial message. I think we need to be ready to adapt. We need to be quick. We need to admit what we don't know. We need to find out who we can learn from. And even when we've learned, we need to be ready to learn more. Is that how you see it? Yes, I do. And I believe a couple of things. One is there's a great image, which is if you're setting out in a car for a long journey of 100 miles, you can only see as far as your headlights. But just driving that way, you can get all the way there. So we can't see 30 years out. We can only see six months ahead. But if we keep learning and adapting as we go, that will help us to get to our final destination. The second is it's such early days. And what we see now are tiny little changes and incremental improvements. We haven't seen the exponential effects kick in properly. But when we catalyze the companies and we help them with finding customers, creating connections, really getting into their stride, we will see some exponential changes 5, 10, 15 years out, which will have much more dramatic effects. Now, to give you an example from my time at Shazam, when we started out, it took us 10 years before we got to Shazam being used a billion times, which is a big milestone. It took only one more year for the next billion. Then it took just two more months for the next billion after that. So that was the real turning point. It's just hanging in there long enough for that environment to all come together where you can really make a difference. A lot of people think that we are making no progress on climate change. Nothing much is happening. Yeah. Greta Thunberg and others accuse politicians of fiddling while Rome burns. But actually, we're spending a vast amount of money on the transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy. I heard the other day that we're spending a billion dollars every single day on installing solar panels. And you can see windmills sprouting up everywhere. And I think we do need to be modest about what we know. Our models of the climate are not big enough, they're not sophisticated enough yet to be able to tell us what's really happening with any great degree of certainty, as you've both said. But if you're in charge of policy, you've got to take a view about where we are now and where we're going in the nearest future, because there are very different routes that you could take. One route is to say, it is an absolute disaster already. It is a catastrophe. We should stop drilling. We should certainly not issue any new licenses for drilling for oil. We should rapidly reduce the amount of fossil fuels we consume. If we do that, it has massive consequences in that it makes a lot of people poorer, and particularly the people who are already on the edge. So it's a very important decision, and it has to be made. Somebody has to make it. Unfortunately, we can't just say, mm, we don't really know. We'll just trolley along and see what happens. It's not really an option. Somebody's got to make those decisions. Yes. And I'm a classic Silicon Valley entrepreneur type. So I believe it's not government's role to be able to look into the future and make all the right decisions today. I don't believe it's for each of us as individuals to be able to shape the future. I believe it's for a small group of people who are working hard on creating businesses which are sustainable and have a positive impact as well. And what we can do as society, as business, as government, as charities, as individuals, is to lend them our support. And we can do that in three ways. One is through capital, which is what I do as an early stage investor. So small amounts of money can go a long way at an early stage. The second is by being customers. 
and helping these companies get their products to the market, get it in the hands of companies as well as people. And the third is creating connections, telling our friends about products we love, helping companies that we believe in go beyond their lab in Cambridge or their little office in London and become global businesses. And I think by doing that, we can all play a small part but shape a future which none of us really have any insight into where we stand today. Now, this is, as I said, a narrow-minded entrepreneurial perspective. But I think that when we look at the world today, 30 years ago, we didn't have Google. We didn't have Apple being the giant that it is today. If you look forward 30 years from now, the companies which are going to be dominant have not been created yet. They are not names that we have heard but they will shape our future. So that's my perspective. So let me invite you to do the third of these things. You said that what we should do is we should tell people about the companies and products and solutions that excite us. Yes. We see have potential, but the world as a whole doesn't know much about. You've already mentioned dandelion and geothermal energy. Yes. What else would you like to tell our listeners about? Sure. So I'm on the committee for an organization called Tech Nation which is promoting the climate tech ecosystem in the UK. And I would love listeners to check out the work which Tech Nation is doing and get more familiar with some of the companies in their portfolio. Personally, I've also invested in Entrepreneur First, which is a talent investor, so bringing together super smart entrepreneurs. And there's a couple of fascinating companies I've learned about. So for instance, Fairbricks, which basically extracts fumes from fabrications in plants and turns it into plastics which normally would be damaging to the environment. Neoplants is another example which is genetically modified plants which helps to clean the air in your home. Now this it's more climate adjacent rather than being directly climate related. It feels almost like science fiction but these are the technologies which are being created today and it's a real privilege to be involved and associated with some of these entrepreneurs and play a small role, if I can, in helping their dreams come true. Well, Shazam sounded like science fiction as well. The idea that you could just have a few seconds of listening and it would tell you which version of which song it was. So science fiction sometimes does come true. I think that's exactly right. I'm smiling now because my kids still use it today. But at the time, my dad said to me, look, if it doesn't work out, you can always come and doss down on the sofa. But yeah, we were incredibly lucky to have made it through lots and lots of ups and downs. And I wish the same for all the dreamers that are setting out today, because it's incredibly tough. But I know for a fact that the change makers are in action today. One more question about the change makers. Yes. Maybe I push back a little bit on the perspective Callum is offering, which is that if we are going to go for sustainable energy, it's going to make a lot of people poorer. Yeah. Is there not an alternative vision that actually the change makers can make a booming new economy in which people will be well off with uh, new sustainable green energy and so on, rather than having to make financial sacrifices? I absolutely think so. So, for instance, we've got plentiful solar energy, which is being increasingly tapped, but we don't lack energy. It's about tapping into it effectively 
at a commercial rate. I think that the big risk that we face is not overwork and not try to compete with each other, but collaborate to the extent possible to make the most of the resources that exist on this earth as well as in space, but then balance that with human well-being. Look after other species as well. Look after the planet. I believe in capitalism. I am a capitalist, but I am not a big fan of the excesses of capitalism, which comes with things like income inequality or disparities. I think it's striking the right balance between creating these businesses, but keeping in mind that we need to think about society and think about our wellness as well. To be clear, I'm not saying that we shouldn't transition away from fossil fuels towards renewable sources. I think we should as fast as we can. And there's definitely a very positive scenario in which the world is run on solar, wind and the other renewable resources. My point is that if we suddenly stop the oil-based economy, a lot of people will be thrown into poverty and some of those people are already very poor and they will be in a desperate situation. It's about a transition rather than a sudden jarring halt to the existing economy and then try to pick up a new one. How long that transition has to be, I don't know. But just to say oil is bad, therefore stop it and throw all the oil barons in jail strikes me as being a dangerous recipe. I think that's exactly right. You use exactly the right terms, which is a transition. And sometimes one doesn't know. I have the privilege of investing in Al Gore's Generation Investment Management Fund. They are funding growth companies which are working specifically on the transition. And we just don't know when they will achieve the size and scale to enable a smooth transition. But we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. What we can and should do now is to encourage as much as we can the smoothest and fastest transition possible. Are there other areas that you point to beyond your interest in climate tech? Yes. The other company that I've invested in five years ago, so it's called MeVite. They are an augmented intelligence company which helps to create a fairer workforce. And they do that by fighting against unconscious bias in the recruitment process. The average recruiter looks at a CV for six seconds and makes a judgment based on uh, it could be the person's name or where they were educated or what sport they follow, which leads to suboptimal outcomes. We know that there's so much more opportunity for women and minorities and neurodiverse people, for instance. Mivita has done a fantastic job to eliminate these unconscious biases. We're not doing it deliberately. It's just the way our brains are wired and the experience that we have. We're all guilty. I served on their board for the last five years. They're now just expanding from the UK to the US in a major way. I see a future in which many more people from different backgrounds have an opportunity to contribute, and that can only be a good thing. So I'm a big proponent, I guess, of diversity and inclusion in the future of work. And there's a broader point there, fighting against unconscious bias, because in almost every field, we are sometimes victims of unconscious bias. Mm hmm whether we're talking about climate change, whether we're talking about the strengths and weaknesses of capitalism, the strengths and weaknesses of AI, anything that your software, your solutions can do to help us in these other fields to see things more clearly and less, perhaps, emotionally, that may help us. That's exactly right. It's obvious that we get along with like-minded people. At the same time, we know the benefits of diverse thinking. How do you bring on board somebody who thinks quite differently from you? It's a real human challenge. 
But if we don't, then we don't get as good ideas. We're less innovative. We're less likely to see an idea which is lurking in the shadows. So it's to all our benefit to challenge our thinking, have people around us who have completely different perspectives and upbringing. And it's a journey, I think, for all of us, regardless of what profession we're in or what industry we work in. Well, Josh, when you launched Shazam, you and your colleagues brought a really special piece of magic into the world, which I've been impressed by for decades. And you're continuing that tradition and birthing more magic into the world. So thank you. As the Americans say, thank you for your service. <laughs> thank you ever so much, Callum. You're far too kind. David, really appreciate this opportunity. I'm a huge fan of London Futurists, so I look forward to staying tuned in the future as well.